0: I'm Shannon Green, and you're listening to On Extremism, a podcast that takes a deep dive into the causes, manifestations, and responses to one of the most important issues of our time. In this series, we'll talk to top experts, policymakers, and practitioners to understand how we can better counter violent extremism around the world. Our podcast is made possible by the CSIS Commission on Countering Violent Extremism, chaired by former British Prime Minister Tony Blair and former U.S. Secretary of Defense, Leon Panetta. For more information on the commission, please visit www.csis.org. Welcome back to On Extremism. I'm very excited to introduce today's guest, Sanam Naragi Anderlini, who's the co-founder and executive director of the International Civil Society Action Network, or ICANN. Sanam's experience in women, peace, and security has placed her at the forefront of the conversation surrounding women and violent extremism providing strategic guidance and training to key UN agencies, the British government, and NGOs worldwide, SNAM continues to conduct groundbreaking field research on women's contributions to conflict prevention, security, and peacemaking. Sanam, welcome, and thank you for joining us here today.
1: Thank you. It's lovely to be here.
0: Great. Well, to get us started, why don't you tell us a bit about your work with ICAND and through the Women's Alliance for Security Leadership? Sure.
1: Um. So, I've been working in the space of conflict-affected, crisis-affected countries for over 20 years globally. When we formed ICANN with my colleague, uh, our interest was the Middle East, North Africa region, and Asia, because we are both Iranian by origin, and we wanted to take that region. So it became Muslim-majority context, but it was also context where we see closed political space, and then the transitions and the Arab revolutions that we were were beginning to witness. and we, our goal was to look at how women are engaged in these processes of change and, and peacemaking um, and recognizing that it was an area where women's rights and peace and security intersected very deeply because you had regimes and then you had movements, the Islamist movements, that ideologically were um very focused and in terms of targeting where women should be in society. So it wasn't about our ethnicity or our race so much, or even religion. It was very much the gendered identity was important to these ideological movements. So that was something that was of interest to both of us. In 2012, uh, we had our first gathering of women from 12 different countries across Asia, uh, Middle East, North Africa. And we were sitting in a conference room in Turkey, um, Everybody had done their situation analysis, their conflict and peace analysis of what was going on in their countries. And the Libyans said, the Salafis are coming. And first they went after the dead because they attacked all the shrines and were destroying all the shrines. And then they came after the women, the vulnerable. And then that same day, we heard the news of the attacks on the U.S. compound in Benghazi. And they knew Ambassador Stevens. Um, And it was... Interesting for us to see how the media picked up that piece of news, the, the attacks on the U.S. embassy compound, but not all the early warning signs that these women had seen. And, and then we heard from our Tunisians, and they were saying, we've never had imams in Tunisia um, pushing the message of female genital mutilation. This is not an Islamic thing, and it's certainly not a Tunisian thing, and yet they're floating, they're coming in. We heard from our Egyptian colleagues that that this, that that they were seeing the Salafi movements becoming political actors and, and so forth. So these women really were at the front lines of warning about the spread of this ideology and the spread of these groups and seeing in their own communities the money that was pouring in and the weapons that were pouring in. And as precisely because the ideology at the core of the extremist ideology, there is an issue with women. Of course, they were feeling it themselves as well. Um, So that's kind of for us where we became very conscious of the importance of looking at extremism from the lens of women, but also recognizing that as women's rights and peace and democracy activists, they were being incredibly squeezed because on the one hand, the extremists were targeting them. On the other hand, the state and militarism and militarized states were also beginning to squeeze the spaces that they were in, which is what you see in Egypt, for example.
0: So let's talk a little bit more about the role of women as sort of early warning um, signs or early warning perceptors, in the sense that oftentimes you know you hear about women as recruiters or women as victims of violent extremism, or in some cases even women as fighters or as enablers. But what you're also saying is that women are oftentimes the first to recognize that these ideologies are gaining momentum
1: in their communities. So talk about that potential a little bit. So, so for example, um, our colleagues in Tunisia who are university professors said all of a sudden we were seeing the coverings, the students coming to class with you know the, the black hijabs and the faces covered and trying to fly the Salafi flag. Um, all the active over the years that we've now been working with them, all of the women pretty, across all of these countries Um, because they stand up and speak out against that ideology, and because they articulate an alternative vision for their societies, which is um, culturally relevant and culturally rooted, because they are from that area, and they know their context, but also deeply um, grounded in human rights, um, they are a threat to the Ideology and the groups that, that, that uh, of the of the extremist movements that that we see, so pretty much everybody we know has actually had death threats across the across the region, and I think that's another indication of how important and powerful women are because what we see is that, as you said, um, extremist movements you know there's gender in the essence of how they recruit the men and the women. Right. they're tapping into the grievances and aspirations of young men they're sent, they're promising dignity and they're promising belonging and they're promising manhood of some sort right to, to, to men to young men who are flailing and, and not really being able to assert themselves in society they're promising young women especially those who were second generation uh, Muslims in in Western contexts um, a sense of agency and saying you can come here and belong and, and we give you you know you can be part of creating a new society and trying to sort of uh, address that the, the tension that they feel that on the one hand at home, there might be a lot of conservative values. And then they're in, a, in this incredibly open, very sexualized space uh, publicly in, in Western context. And, and neither of them really fits their sense of identity. And here's somebody else offering something else. So, the, so they recruit on that basis. Um, they're very good at co-opting. I mean, this is, this is something that we have to, to recognize that they understand the power and influence of women socially, within, you know, within social context, how, whether it's wives, sisters, mothers, girlfriends, etc., can shape and influence the conversations and the, and the attitudes at home. And they're tapping into that, right? So, so they can co-opt. Of course, we hear, we see them coercing women in terms of sexual violence and, and, and so forth. And precisely because they recognize the power and influence that women have, when they see women standing up and speaking out against them, they target them. So we say they're, you know, women are being co-opted, coerced, or killed, basically, by, by, by these groups. And what's ironic is that um, the Western discourse on these issues is so far behind. Um, and they have not really understood that, that the reason why women are being assassinated because they speak out is because they're powerful. right? You don't go and assassinate somebody for the hell of it. You do it because that person has influence. Um, and in our in the political sort of global context, there's a lot of rhetoric about support for women, But it slips into "Oh, women as victims," or we get very excited as women as jihadis. That's not new. We've had women fighters in all sorts of liberation movements worldwide historically. Um, what we keep forgetting about is this group of independent, um, sort of human rights focused indigenous women's organizations that have that are fighting this really at the at the very forefronts of their communities and at the national level. Um, One of the things that we say is that if you look at jihadi or extremist movements, and it's really important to not just frame it in Islamic groups. I mean, we see that across Buddhist, uh, Hinduism, you know, evangelical Christian movements and so forth. But what you see is that they are locally rooted and globally connected. Right. So they have a similar vision, whether they're Boko Haram or al-Shabaab or, uh, you know, frankly, ISIS or al-Qaeda in, in some of the, the issues that they're trying to, to portray, but they're locally rooted and that's how they recruit and, and that that's how they kind of are able to spread. Women's movements are the counterpoint to that. They are also very deeply locally rooted and globally connected, except that the extremists have the violence and the power and the money, and 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 the women's movements have very little actual resources, and are being deeply targeted um, by everybody now. Uh, so 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 so, but they're such a critical part of the discussion. That
0: gets my next question, which is given the central role of women and women's movements in countering violence and speaking up for the kind of diversity and tolerance in societies we want to see, but at the same time the fact that they're being targeted, what are things that external actors can do, whether that be a civil society organization or network such as your own or governments? What can we do to both protect and enable and empower that
1: kind of um, women's movement? So I think think the first thing is that we should learn to listen to them. They have a lot of expertise about what works on the ground um, in terms of what they can do, and I can give you examples of that, but more importantly, they also have an, an incredible amount of information and knowledge about what our international policies are doing And whether they're working or actually doing harm, right? So, for example, through the Women's Alliance for Security Leadership, which is this uh, loose alliance of women-led organizations that that we've formed, uh, we did a consultation on security interventions, um, on police training, for example, or the role of the police in communities. Uh, Who best to tell you whether our training and the millions of dollars we've spent on the training of Afghan police or the training of the Iraqi police who best to tell you whether that's working or doing harm than women in the communities and the sad part of the story is that they have a lot to tell us about the problems right the police aren't being paid they haven't been um they haven't got the necessary tools or equipment it's they're like the poor cousins to the army the training the content of the training that we have provided is hugely problematic in many of these places because these are countries where the police force was a force of oppression. And for it to be trusted in the community, the entire mentality has to be turned into um, serving the community, being there to protect them. And and yet you know how much of that it has been integral to the trainings that we provided. It's nominal, right? And and the net result, unfortunately, is that we have trained. Whatever the training is, we have equipped, we've given them uniforms with with you know fancy insignia, empowered these guys to go out, and they have become a critical source of violence. And that violence that they've perpetrated has helped fuel radicalization and people either joining the Taliban or wanting ISIS to come in, et cetera. The women have been warning about this for years, and we don't listen to them. So, so the first, the best thing that we could do is to have them at our tables and listen to the very uncomfortable truths that they will put on the table, not because they wanna be critical and they don't want us there. They, they actually have very sophisticated approaches to what kind of inter- international intervention is necessary and so forth, but because they want it to work. They get that it's money being spent. They get that, that the intention is good, but they're just saying, look, the intention is good, look at the outcome. And, and I think that sometimes we are a little bit thin-skinned about uh, hearing those uncomfortable truths.
0: So what you're getting to is something that I myself have thought about a lot, which is the relationship between peace, security, and human rights. Mm -hmm. So you have called for an evolution, if you will, of the paradigm of CVE. Where do you think we need to go with this paradigm that addresses some of these critiques or concerns?
1: That's a great question. Um, So first of all, I think the biggest problem I have with it is that the notion that we are countering something countering terrorism as it was now it's countering violent extremism and then we've shifted to preventing violent extremism it's still being against something Mm -hmm. right it's not really articulating what it is that we are for and that to me is the biggest conceptual shift that that we need to make because people are not being recruited on the basis of you know come and become a nihilistic murderer they're being (laughs) recruited on the basis of you know you have grievances about you know what we've done or not done in Syria. You have grievances about how your community treats you and in terms of discrimination. It doesn't really matter what how they're recruited, but they're being promised something positive, right? Whether that is an empty promise is beside the point. It's it's the promise of something positive, right? On our side, we're not promising anything. I mean, see, as I say, if we're just countering and being you know preventing this, it's we're setting such a low bar as opposed to saying we are for dignity and Respect for diversity and pluralism, and good governance, and all the all these things that people are actually thirsty for, I think. Whether it's economic and social dignity, whether it's having a government that is not corrupt, whether it's having a police force that's that is there to serve them, these are the reasons why people are are pulled away and and and, and think that that you know joining the Taliban or Al Shabaab is going to give them something else. It's a little bit of money, maybe it's you know it's, it's some protection, etc. Um, we need to articulate that positive framing. And the biggest challenge is that it's no longer enough for us to say, oh, we stand for human rights or we stand for governance um, and then support <laughs> corrupt, inept states um, or military, you know, heavily sort of predatory states, which is what we've done historically, um, because they see it on social media, right? They, every day they see us supporting the bombing of Yemen through the Saudis, for example. So we can't say, oh, we believe in human rights. When that's the messaging. We can't say, you know, we think, I don't know, peace and security is fabulous when we're dropping drones on their heads. So, so the, the hypocrisy and the double standards that we are operating with are now exposed in a daily manner. And that's something that we have to um, kind of face ourselves in the mirror and say, where do we stop? Because the direction we're going in the, and the current trajectory is really, really dangerous um, in terms of the spread of these issues. And, and as I say, our own legitimacy um as as western states and and i and i i say ours i mean i i really think about it as the international community who has fundamentally wanted to promote human rights and pluralism and, and good governance. But we're all at, at this point, the, the legitimacy of all of the actors is, is at stake, I think.
0: And as you know, a lot of the international discourse has centered on the central role of civil society, in countering violent extremism. Yet, as you and I have talked about, civil society all over the world is under a tremendous amount of pressure, both from governments and from non-state actors. Can you talk a little bit about how you see that and also how it affects your work and the organizations that you work
1: with on the ground. Thank you. Um, so, so two things. Number one is that uh, we have to recognize that civil society, independent think tanks, media, NGOs, human rights organizations, et cetera, we provide a space for constructive critique and engagement with government and moderate dissent, right? So it, it's really, um, and if you don't have that moderate space, right? people are angry people have grievances and where do they go they go towards the radicals we've seen this over and over again in dictatorships that if if all your you know if your state destroys that middle ground there will always be an underground source and often it's related to the church or the mosque or the other you know faith groups that that you can't squash basically so we have to recognize that the space for Strong, vibrant, independent, independent civil society—not not the ones that are, you know, government gongos and things like that—is is an essential pillar in our um, uh, struggle for peace and security and sustainability and and and, against, and countering extremism or, or or creating resilience. It's it, we need to provide that space. So that that's that is something that that has to be kind of understood and, and addressed. However, what we're also seeing is that this agenda whether it's counterterrorism or CVE these days, is being used by many governments to actually shut down precisely that space, right? They can't get at the hardline militias, so what do they do? They go for the, for the NGOs, they go for the university professors who sign peace petitions, they go for the journalists. And, you know, we don't have, we, we don't fight back with weapons. You know, we, our, our colleagues are under constant threat they're being um, monitored, you know, by security forces. They're being, you know, implicitly or explicitly threatened. Um, and unless those governments recognize that they are not your enemy, actually, they are there because uh, they care about their country. They are—I mean, some of my colleagues that that I see—and uh, I think they're they're some of the best patriots that I've ever come across. You know, it's people who genuinely care. Um, similarly, in this country, you know, why do you why do we spend our lives working on? Improving, I don't know, the U.S.'s climate change positions or education or, or whatever. It's because you care. If you didn't care, you'd be watching the Kardashians, right? It's, that, it's it's very simple. So it's people who care who stand up and speak out, and yet they're the ones that are being targeted. And and again, at the international level, we're not speaking out and standing with them enough. In, in fact, we are shifting in a very dangerous direction because our attitude is now becoming, oh, well, those countries— um, you know, they have different values. Uh, democracy isn't really an Arab thing, for example. It, it's, you know, human rights, it's our, human rights are our values, it's not their values. Whereas people are dying for basic human rights values. So, so we have to kind of, again, look at, our, look at ourselves in the mirror and and see whether we have the courage to stand up and engage with governments in on this very, very critical issue and, and enable the, the, the space uh, for civil society to thrive. Um, another aspect of this is the financial challenges. And that's here, it's there, it's everywhere. I mean, we, you know, we're all constantly being um, monitored in case, you know, one cent of money goes towards some organization that's on a terrorist um, uh, group. Uh, And that
0: concern is used by governments to go after civil society organizations that they don't like. Exactly. So I wanted to ask you about that, about the funding model that you guys use to channel money to people on the ground that are doing that really cutting-edge work.
1: It's, so, so, we were, so our starting point was that we have partners on the ground who have proven track records of doing good work. So that, and, and the question is, yeah, how do we get resources to them in a safe way, in a flexible way for them to be able to adjust and do the work that they think is necessary to trust their judgment about what their communities need? You know, we don't need to tell them. They know right? So the how do we how do we enable that? Um, what we've seen across many countries is that, uh, number one, the bureaucracy and the paperwork associated with trying to get money directly from a government to an NGO on the ground, you know, Western or whatever, external government um, to an NGO in any of these places, it, it over, you know, they get drowned in paperwork. If they do it through the UN, similarly, there's a lot of administration. Plus, there is effectively, you know, their governments have to be informed that that money is coming and going, right? And which, which can put them at risk. Sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't, but, you know, you have to be, be careful of that. What we did was we designed something called the Inclusive Challenge Fund. And it was an entirely participatory process from beginning to end. We, we got together with partners in six countries, core partners in six countries. And we said, imagine if we were able to get a grant to allow us to do work around addressing extremism. What are the areas of work that you think would be necessary? They came up with a four framework for four areas, so de-radicalization and demobilization of militias, doing deep resilience and prevention work in their communities, almost like what I call inoculations, kind of of providing diversity, providing counter-narratives, bringing in alternative uh, interpretations of Islam, pushing back against the Wahhabism, which is basically what has been sort of flooding their, their countries, um, doing... Uh, work on violence against women and minorities, and uh, looking at sort of national and international policy processes. So, peace process in Syria, government policies in Iraq, et cetera. And under those, so they, they came, that was the kind of overall framework. And then under that, each of them came up with specific pro- programs that they wanted to do in country. We provided space for them to interact with each other and learn from each other, which was really important. So, Pakistan talking to Nigeria, you know, how do you do that? And what are the similarities and what are the differences? And then um, we we had an M&E person, a monitoring and evaluation person, who was walking with them through the whole process. Uh, we got they were they had input and in design of the project proposal form so that it wasn't overly, overly burdensome, but at the same time matched the donors' needs in terms of M&E and reporting and so forth. But basically, what we did was what we we became the holders of the funds and dispersing it to them, so that we limited their. Uh, administrative and bureaucratic responsibilities, but also at the same time helped build up their institutional capacities for the ones that that, that needed it. They then, some of them, um, because they had community peace groups, they then dispersed dispersed small grants to their, again, to their trusted counterparts. And the results have been extraordinary. So in Nigeria, for example, they did a um, 15-week community radio show with Islamic scholars coming on radio talking about why education doesn't counter Islamic values, and in fact, how the Quran talks about it, education. They had a 40% increase in um, enrollments in schools, 40%. They created spaces for a dialogue between um, communities that are so badly affected by Boko Haram that there are virtually no men left, and it's these women who are so stigmatized, and they can't bring their kids to school even, or engage the police because they're scared. And they provided the space for the police to interact with these communities, for different communities to talk to each other. and build the trust. right? Um, And it's changed the dynamics. In Pakistan, uh, small grants went to very local um, community peace, volunteer community peace groups that our partners had already formed. And by giving them grants of $1,000 to women's peace groups and youth peace groups, who then used theater and traditional poetry and all sorts of very soft ways to bring the discourse of extremism out into the public, they actually opened space to talk about what's going on, and they've now had a response in terms of how the local communities are reacting to attacks on universities and so forth, and saying enough of this. So, it's so what I say is that at the international level, the discussions—it's like the ma- the management consultants came in and you know programmed all our brains, um, and that the the, the terminology is you know, return on risk and risk appetite, and you know as if we're talking about the stock market um, kind of thing. And I say, well, actually, we need to shift it and say um, appetite for trust and return on trust. Because if we want to look at the world and think that everybody who's out there is either incompetent, corrupt, or a terrorist, which is appetite for risk is what it does, You know, God forbid, um, we're in a really bad place. Whereas if we turn it around and say, actually, the vast majority of people do not want this kind of violence. They are not extremists. They have, you know, historically, they've lived together in hugely diverse communities. Um, for generations, uh, it opens up the space for the opportunities of what what we can do. And so so it's a shift in paradigm and thinking and mindset.
0: And do you think that there are prospects that that model can be replicated or expanded? Because what I found in CVE is that there are these really promising initiatives and programs that never get taken to scale. Mm-hmm. So, just sort of curious about whether you think that that model has traction and some ability to,
1: to really scale it up. So, so, so here's I. I will not let death by bureaucracy exactly. get to yeah. us, right? It's sort of so. You know, for us, what we found with this model is that the reason why it worked was we had built the relationships of trust between us and our partners. We were there the entire way providing technical assistance, providing the mentoring when they need it, providing the connections, and being, you know, the funding was almost the icing on the cake, you know, but it's important. And it's really, and if we if we want to stand by what our rhetoric says, women's organizations, you know, civil society, then we need to give the resources to them, right? So, so our job as a small international NGO, but with this incredible network, is to keep pushing and saying look here is a way that this can work but recognizing that it's not something that any you know you can just pop up tomorrow and say oh now i have a fund because actually the folks on the ground who are doing the real work won't talk to you because it's so dangerous for them so it that the trust relationships for them to know that you're there to hold their back to be there and, and be a buffer when they need to but open the doors when you need to and, and so forth is is really essential and that doesn't come overnight right mm-hmm. so 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 that's that's certainly I think one aspect of it um, we for example when when we started this we were uh, asked by the by our donors to expand to seven or eight countries and we said no because we don't have strong partners in those places we'll do it in the places that we we can continue Building on this model, and now that we have it, we know what works and what doesn't and and what resources it takes from us, and you know what it takes to manage it and and we really do hope to to expand it but but it's not something that you can do overnight and and um and it's it, it is but it is possible right um, the other part of this that I think is is really interesting to see is that very often international organizations commission or Partner with locals and then call them implementing partners, and they take the credit for the work themselves. That is so wrong-headed in this spe- in this space because what you want is that locally rooted indigenous person, and in fact you want it to be as hands-off as possible, right? So, uh, little things like branding, we don't we don't ask our partners that oh just because they you know we supported them that they should have our brand on their flyers or whatever material there. Sometimes they say we want to use it because it's nice to be connected and be to be seen to be part of a global uh, alliance. Other times they say we couldn't, and that's fine too. It's really it, it, because it's it's really not our work; it's their work, right? And and we need to give recognition to them as the leaders and their organizations. It's it one of the things that worries me a lot is that people come along and they say, oh, you know, we're working with women, women, women leaders. We can't go based on individuals. We have to strengthen their institutions because unless you have an institution that is on the ground that's, that's legitimate that can keep producing and providing a space for others to come through then it's always going to be individualistic and then one you know one person gets tired or they leave or the, and then what do you do right so, so that in organizational institutional um, that development is, is really critical and how do you do that well you do it by supporting the institution and giving them credit for the work that they've done as opposed to taking credit
0: It's really flipping their current business model on its head, which I think is something we're also looking at in the civil society space Mm -hmm. as a way of pushing back on closing space is maybe we're doing this wrong. We're doing it all wrong and we need to look at new models. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, you've talked about your multiple identities and the fact that your origins are in Iran, but you've spent time in the UK and also in the United States. How does that inform the way that you think about these challenges? But also, I'm curious about the role that you think that the diaspora can play in countering violent extremism or putting it in a more positive frame creating societies <laughs> that respect yeah. human rights, diversity, tolerance. It, so on it's and
1: funny. So forth. There was a there was a head, headline recently, of an- Angela Merkel saying multiculturalism doesn't work, and I was like, No, I work. I wake up every morning, and I'm, you know, I, we function. <laughs> um, it's you know, it's it's very interesting. I I grew up in Iran at an American school, international school. So from the in kindergarten, we were singing the Australian national anthem and Hava Nagila, and, and drawing pictures of the Mayflower and Chinese dragons. I mean, it was so much a part of my education that, that the idea that I don't look at the world and see see it as a totality is, is something that I've never actually considered. But what I've realized over the years is that we do occupy a very interesting space, because when I look at, say, the discourse on Islam, and, and I sort of question, and I look at it, and I think, is that you know, I'm being told that's Islam. That's not the Islam that my grandmother practiced. And then I talk to my colleagues in Pakistan and Egypt and, and so forth, and you, you look at the history, and you look at almost like doing social archaeology. We have a project of doing social archaeology, of pulling back th- through ancient times the role of women in our region, because it gets erased. Um, you realize that actually a lot of what we're seeing now is the product of the last 30 years of Wahhabism being spread. It's, it is what I call South sectarianism. It's a tiny sect... Of Sunni Islam that you know is dominant in Saudi Arabia or Qatar or wherever that has been spread very systematically through mosques, through educational institutions, through satellite TV, through a lot of money that's been poured into these countries. And it's erasing the more diverse syncretic, moderate practices that they had. you know in Pakistan, a generation ago, women used to bicycle everywhere and they now they're not there. in In Sri Lanka, I went and I, I was like, why are women completely covered in black? And then you look at pictures of how they used to dress and it's, you know, so so you see these are these are new trends. And so for me, um, in a sense, that's where I say, well, this isn't the Islam that I know and it's not the Islam that my colleagues know. And perhaps by virtue of being Muslim, we need to speak out and say this, because so often, as our Western colleagues or our Christian colleagues, or what, they feel awkward. They say, oh, you know, I can't talk about that. And it's that sort of element of cultural relativism that, that, that comes in. So we need to speak about that side of the story. On the other hand, um, you know, I was educated in England. I, I uh, lived in the U.S. for 15 years. Um, I know the literature and the pop culture and you name it, of, of this side of the world. Um, I, you know, my husband was Italian. I speak French. I mean, I've worked all over the world. So I get this side. Right? And and what I see, and, and a lot of my friends and colleagues are the same, we see the best of both of the worlds, of these multiple worlds, and we see the worst. Right, So we see the hypocrisies and the bad stuff, and we also see the good things. And it ta- I guess the point now is to say, look, we need to focus on the good on, on all sides, because we're letting the bad and we're letting the minority, vocal, angry of either community... Um, determine the future of the vast majority and so that middle ground is is a space that you know i occupy and um, i kind of reached a point where i'm like freedom of expression is actually a responsibility at this point in when we look at the world we the people need to see and hear what we have to say because if we don't speak out who will and frankly as as things get ba- if things get worse in the U.S., I'm a Muslim, so what am I? What's going to happen if Trump gets in? And, and you know, and the extremists don't like me because I'm a feminist. So what's going to happen? You know, so we may as well speak out for ourselves and our, and our community. That's one thing. And then the other part of it is really looking at it in terms of thinking about how second generation, third generation refugees and migrants, um, the kids that are born here who don't know what their cultural or you know context was but they don't feel at home here. They don't feel a sense of belonging. And and how do you adjust educational curricula to make them feel, to feel themselves reflected in that, right? As I said, it's it's not hard. We can do it in art and music and history and connections in, in all sorts of ways, but it's a willingness on the part of governments to recognize that, you know, French history doesn't start and stop with the boundaries of France or British history isn't just jousting in the Middle Ages, which was the kind of history that I learned when I was at school there. You know, it, there's a reason why you have Asian minorities or, you know, African minor, you know, minorities. You, you happen to be there as colonizers, so they're now here. And, and, and it's part of a very rich tapestry. And we should pull the best of all the worlds as opposed to diminishing it or looking at just the worst. Sanam, I have appreciated this
0: conversation so much. It's been so informative. But now that you do have this platform, I wanted to give you a chance to say anything else to our listeners about women, about peace and security, about violent extremism that we haven't covered yet.
1: Thank you. Um, Well, I just hope that their willingness to see and listen to the kind of women that I work with um, is more open. Let's put it that way. Because you know, it's easy to think of women as, um, especially if they're coming and they don't speak English and, and, and so forth, to think that we are perpetually in need of empowering them. Um, I want you to look at them and think of them as the most empowered, courageous people that are out there who have a lot to teach us about what we could do better in their countries because we are present in their countries. So I, th- I think that would be the most. Um, critical message that 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 I would uh, share and that this this issue this problem of extremism which is part of a broader challenge of a world where we are living in the most pluralistic societies ever but we also need social cohesion Um, it's like a new peace architecture that we need to establish each of us in our spaces and in our identities have something to contribute and we need to have the dialogue on an equal footing, um, whether it's civil society and government and military, civil society here and civil society there. But none of us can do it alone. And, and in a sense, if we actually have the dialogues and listen to each other, I think there's a lot that we have in common. Um, and that should be what should be driving us. But um, there is a, we need a vision of where we're going. And, and, and that can only come about if we actually start talking and listening to each other. That's such a fantastic
0: and inspirational note to end on. Sinan, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I really appreciated our conversation and hope that our listeners find it as compelling as I did. Thank you very
1: much. And go to our website, icanpeacework.org, and WASL, Women's Alliance for Security Leadership, and follow us on Twitter. And yes, we're here in Washington. Great. Thank Thank you. you.